This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. Hey, everybody. I have a quick announcement, which is that my course, Story Arcana Tarot for Writers, is now available for you to join as an evergreen course, which means you can sign up and join whenever you would like. It's a course which helps you work through any block uh, or stuck places in your writing with tarot and tarot spreads. You do not need to be a tarot expert, nor do you need to have ever picked up a deck before in order to benefit from the class. We're just tapping into the part of our brains that loves to make up a story when we see an image. So there are spreads, tips, and tricks, and lots of resources and explanations through the course, which is delivered through 15 lessons that arrive in your inbox after you sign up. You can learn more at carolinedonahue.com slash story arcana. Again, that's carolinedonahue.com slash story arcana. Now let's get on with the show. This is episode 79. My guest this week is David Rocklin. He is the author of the novel, The Luminist, and the founder creator of Rorschach, a monthly reading series in Los Angeles. His second novel, The Night Language, is out now. It came out in November. David was born and raised in Chicago and now lives in LA with his wife, daughters, and a 150-pound Great Dane who seriously needs to stay on his side of the bed. He's currently at work on his next novel, The Electric Love Song of Fleischl Berger. I loved having David on because he's taken this theme that we've been exploring lately of history and historical events, and he has taken the interesting tactic of writing about a historical figure he found out about in photographic research for his first novel, The Luminist, and then explored an alternative life for this character he discovered in his second novel, um, The Night Language. So I love this um, different ways of approaching history in fiction and ways to approach different kinds of characters and situations and scenarios and the ways that you can handle it when you're writing fiction. So I know you'll really enjoy this episode. I loved having this conversation. And here we go with David Rocklin. Hey, David, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. I love when these um, little connections bring me people like so of course, everybody will remember Julia, who was on the show and talked about small, small press publishing. And I am in a book club with Julia. And I said, yeah, we're still in a book club. Um, And I said, who do you got lately? I know you've got good people over there at Rare Bird. And so she sent me your book and I was just like, oh, yes, let's talk about it. So I'm so glad you were game for getting up early in the morning and and talking about your book. I'm up at 530 every single morning. And now I'm like very excited to have this image of my head of Julia in a book club. Oh, yeah. Julia's <laughs> amazing in a book club. And, and saying, hey, I've got tea and crumpets, motherfuckers. Let's, let's talk about our books. So that's <laughs> the best visual so far. <laughs> yeah, she makes a mean pasta. For anyone, we'll link to Julia's episode for anybody who's a newer listener. I was like, who are you talking about? Um, yeah, so I am really excited. I've been, speaking of getting up early in the morning, I'm a weird early morning reader. So I've been reading late at night and then getting up in the morning with the night language and having so much fun with it. Thank you so much. 
So we started to get into this before we hit record, and I was like, wait, we got to get all this on here. So this is your second novel, correct? That's right. So you found a bunch of source material for your first novel, and then the way mm-hmm. the night language happened was there was an unexpected thing that popped out of it. So That's can right. we talk about how that happened? Because I, I love it when stories come out of nowhere. Oh, I, I mean, everything about the night language has been unexpected. It's It's... It was unexpected that it would be a book I would tackle, and it's, it turned into an unexpected love story, unexpected to me and unexpected to the characters in the story, which which we'll get into. But the the first novel that was published um, for me was called The Luminist, and it was a very heavily fictionalized account of uh, Julia Margaret Cameron's life, and she was the, one of the early uh, principal characters in um, Victorian-era photography. And I went to uh, an exhibition of her work at the Getty Museum. And I, I knew nothing about her at the time. I'd never heard of her. I'm not a photography buff. I, I, you know, I'm one of those people who will stare at the camera and wonder why the flash keeps going off, even though I'm trying to hit the little lightning bolt. So I'm not, <laughs> there's nothing about me that's like a photography maven, but I was completely entranced with the images she created, um, especially because of how raw and and primitive the equipment that she would have used was at the time. And I was also really struck by the fact that she was a very transgressive person. You know, she was a woman at a time when the expectation was you're home, you're managing your husband's social calendar, and you're managing the children, and that is all you do, and anything else is frowned on. And she crossed every boundary line that was drawn around her to, to explore this art and science. And so I, after seeing these images, and coming across um, a, a, a quote of hers that was so stunning to me that I actually had it tattooed on my arm, which is, I, I long to arrest all beauty that came before me. I read a biography of hers, and I found out that, tragically, she lost a child at birth, which was not uncommon at the time. And so that, that's how books start for me, is usually an image I see, <clears throat> and then a little factoid that I find out, and the two of them collide and sparks fly. And that's where something starts whirling itself into a story. So at, in that moment, what occurred to me was this woman who became obsessed with never, ever losing something or someone she loved to the frailty of memory. Because if the only thing you have to hold on to something that matters to you is your memory of it, that's going to start to tatter away in a, after a certain point. That's just the nature of memory. It's flawed. So the idea of a woman who becomes obsessed because of the loss of a child with never ever essentially letting God win and and losing something purely to memory and finding a way to take a moment in life and hold it still for forever became really a remarkable idea to me and that's where that book came from and in researching the book I was able to get access to the Getty archives and I saw all of the photographs that she ever did which is an extraordinary body of work and in doing that research, I found one photograph of what would have been about a 10-year-old boy. Uh, he was black. He was dressed the way a colonial at the time would have expected somebody from, quote-unquote, Africa to look. So it was very jarring and disturbing to my eyes because he was wearing you know, a necklace of teeth and he was holding a spear. Um, and so there were all the trappings of sort of colonial bigotry in the picture but the boy this face he was so alone 
and he looked so extraordinarily lost, and yet at the same time there was just something incredibly strong about him. And so I had no idea who he was, and I knew that something about that photograph I needed to contend with. But at that time, I was still writing The, the Luminist. So I set it aside. And then The Luminist went on, got published. I came back to that picture and decided to try to find out who he was. And so I did some research, and I was able to find out he was, in life, the son of the emperor of Abyssinia, which is now Ethiopia. And that during an invasion of Abyssinia in the late 1860s, essentially the British army swept through. His father killed himself, the emperor, rather than be taken. And so the British army took him and brought him back to England. And so there's the image, and then there's the factoid, this idea that he's removed from everything he's ever known by people he's never seen, speaking a language he doesn't understand, taking him to the most unimaginable city on earth at that time, London, and essentially inserting him into the court of Queen Victoria, where he became a ward of hers. And I just thought, that's that's got to be something. And so I just began to flesh out ideas and you know we can we can get into this but it turned very unexpectedly into a love story between two young black men one the son of the abyssinian emperor the other an orphan from london streets who was apprenticed to a surgeon aboard one of the ships that went for the invasion uh, and so that's where that's where the night language was born yeah it's amazing i and i think the other thing that's fascinating is that if Julia Margaret Cameron was trying to preserve things so no one would forget them, that how can you know, you know, in the 1800s when you're making photographs that somebody, you know, almost, you know, 150 years later is going to see it and that a novel will come out of that. It's kind of amazing how that feeds itself and you never know where it's going to go. It's true. I mean, it's, it's, I suppose in some way that's kind of the, the hubristic artist hope is that some piece of me lives on and maybe not only just speaks to people who know me, but maybe speaks to someone who doesn't know me, whether they're living in the now or living in the future. Something about something I've done or something that any of us have done allows someone else to say, oh, I, I see myself in that. I see something in that. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the hope for me anyway, way more than how many books I sell or, uh, you know, do people know me? It, it, to me, the most important thing is if somebody picks up the book and they see in it why I needed to write it and they see a little piece of themselves, you know, kill me. I'm, I can die happy at that point. Absolutely. So let's get into the research process because mm -hmm. these are, you know, significantly different eras, different cultures, mm -hmm. different races, different classes. So there's a lot of boundaries to cross in yes. writing a story like this. Um, so how did you start? So you see the photograph and say, okay, there's something there. I'm going to come back to this. So you finish the luminist, come back. Where did you, where did you begin? Well, um, I began by freaking out because, <laughs> because <laughs> that's reassuring. Because it, it, yeah, exactly. Because it, for exactly the reasons you say, I'm about to cross so many boundary lines in terms of trying to step into a life in a world that I just know nothing about, that I'm not a part of and that I have no background in. Um, and so, you know, I, it really kind of began with me trying to find the answer to the question, do I have the right to do this? You know, and am I the right person to do this? And the answer I came to was no, I, I have no right to do this. What I do have is empathy, curiosity, 
and a desire to do this um, in an in an honorable, respectful, um, non-cliche way, and to sort of not come at it from sort of a, a white privilege place. You know, whether I'm not going to be in the story, but I don't want to be like a savior of somebody's story, you know, or something along those lines. I want to shine a light on a story and let the story speak to how it's very contemporary and and very relevant um, and hopefully moving. And once I was able to kind of calm myself down, <laughs> I tried to learn as much as I could about the character of Alamayu, which was his name in life, the son of the Abyssinian emperor. Um, so everything else about him has been pretty heavily fictionalized. But what I did learn about him really made me, it, what it left me with was the desire to write for him a life that he did not get to live. Because in life, he was taken, he was much younger than he is in the book. Um, he was taken, he was probably 10. Mm. He's brought to the court of Queen Victoria. He is a ward of the queen, but just like the queen's children, he doesn't really spend much time with her and doesn't get to know her. She was a very cold and distant person. So in the novel, she's different. I, I tried to find her human side in the novel. Um, but she's fairly renowned for being a very difficult matriarch, and her children had to make appointments to see her, and, you know, their relationships were just fraught with tension and recrimination and sternness and coldness and, you know, hey, just like my mom. Um, <laughs> no, edit that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. And he died at 17 in life of pleurisy. Um, but a lot of people, in a, in a sort of tragic, romantic way, thought of it as he died of loneliness. Because throughout his life, especially post being taken out of Abyssinia, there was no one else like him. He was utterly alone. Um, he was raised somewhat abroad. He was schooled in different places. He had kind of a quasi-father figure who was a British officer who was part of the invasion force. But in learning about that, and by all accounts, he was fond of Alamayu and tried to treat him well. But at the same time, think about this. This is one of the people who conquered your country, devastated your life, caused the death of your parents. The father killed himself. The mother, uh, Tiru, the queen, died en route from uh, the invasion site back to Annesley Bay. So she never made it um, overseas back to London. So he is orphaned. And this man is a part of the group that orphaned him. And yet he also then provides some sort of odd distant, militaristic father figure. So this life is adding up to something tragic. So the first step in my research was trying to learn as much as I could about him. And as I learned about him, I was just very, very busily making notes as to what about his life I was finding myself really desperate to change. Um, and so if I want to write a life for somebody that they didn't get to have, of course love is in there. But I had no idea where that might come from. And the first couple drafts of the book, the character who was closest to him is sort of a stand-in for that military officer. He was a British doctor. But about two drafts in, he, he just fell away. And I noticed that there was a character at the periphery who was trying to edge his way into the story. And he was aboard the ship. He was a completely minor, unnamed, throwaway character who was also black who was um, a youth from London streets who lost his family to plague, um, who then became apprenticed through circumstances to a doctor aboard the ship. And the only reason he was edging into the story 
was because somebody needed to try to talk to Alamayu, who couldn't speak English. Someone needed to communicate with him or at least try to let him know in some rough way what his new circumstance was. And the more they tried to communicate, the more I began to notice how the characters were really reaching for each other. And so at that point, honestly, I had to step back and just let them find their way to each other. And that's really where the story began. But in terms of research, it was a lot of his biography, what little there is known of it. I found a journal that was actually kept by one of the British officers, uh, an account of the Abyssinian campaign. So I was able to learn just small details about provisions they took, where they went, the tribes that they made contact with as they marched through the country. I also tried to do research on Queen Victoria, on her relationship with her children, on the politics of the time, um, on the, the fractious relationship between the Queen and Parliament. Because uh, to me, and I know this is kind of a long meandering answer, but to me, whenever you're depicting a character in a scene, you have to know what's happening behind the character. And by behind, I don't just mean what's right behind them. Is it a wall? Are they leaning back in a chair? In a, you know, you may not be writing it, but you're visualizing what's happening to them. But behind that, behind the wall, there's a world out there. And in that moment, there's, it's not just what is that world, but what is their relationship to that world? You know, if, if we are going to write a short story together about Trump's America, there is, there is the description of that world, and then there is, you know, uh, there's a deeper question because, as, as, Enright, as Anne Enright said, all description is an opinion of the world. So if I, if I go to describe my relationship to Trump's America, it's going to be based upon who I am socioeconomically, who I am politically, who I am emotionally. You'll do the same thing, and we're not the same person, so how we depict that world is going to change. It's like if we try to physically depict a room and one of us has never been there before and the other one was there before and the last time they were there, they were told, you're never going to be a writer, give up. If we both just simply physically describe that room, you may describe it as, you know, a relatively open, well-lit space, it seems nice, and I'm going to describe it as oppressive and awful. Mm -hmm. But it's the same place because we're, we're talking about two different relationships to what is behind us, what is in front of us. So even as I'm trying to understand where the characters are going to go story-wise, I'm trying to always keep in mind what is their relationship to the world that they're moving in. And in order to do that, I need to do research on what's happening socially, politically, geographically, weather. I just I need to know about the space they're moving in in order to really tell that story the way I want to tell it and make the setting into a character as much as they are a character, if that makes sense. It does. And so... The question that I have with that, as somebody who is prone to spreadsheets and um, lists <laughs> and multiple notebooks, is how do you really do justice to all of that, but not spend the next 25 years researching and never getting to the point where you feel ready to write the book? Right. Yeah. Analysis paralysis, right? Exactly. You know, it, I think the answer to that question is similar to the, to the uh, age-old question of there are three rules for writing a bestseller and nobody knows what they are. I think everybody <laughs> exactly. has their own, their own litmus test for how much is enough. Uh, but I mean, I could pick up the night language right now and red pen it to death. In some ways, you're never done. Um, so I, I don't know that there is an easy answer to when do you know you have enough to really 
sort of explicate the setting in a vivid way. Well, how did you know, I guess, would be, you like, know, how did I, you know I, you were ready to, mm-hmm. to get into it? Right. So for me, there's this sort of weird unspoken little litmus test I have that if the story stops feeling like a story I'm researching and starts feeling like a memory of something that happened to me, mm. I'm, I'm ready to go. And so I just, I, when I was familiar enough with the different rooms in Windsor and the, the just, you know, what is on the Queen's nitrate? Why is there an orange with cinnamon cloves in it? You know, what does the the cell that Alamayu finds himself in at one point, what does that look like? What does it feel like? When I was able to just be sort of five senses into the scene, I was ready to do it. And sometimes I was ready to do the scene, but I was not ready to do the next one. Mm. And so there, you know, there was not sort of a, a very clear demarcation point between the end of research and the beginning of writing. There, there was always research going on when I would get into the next scene and realize, oh, I think they're going to have to take a coach from here to there. But what would that coach have looked like based upon how much money they had? They wouldn't be in this gorgeous, handsome cab with, you know, black lacquered wood and frills on the outside. They would have been in something different. What is that? Or he needs to meet up with a barrister. What would they look, what would their library look like? What What is that room? Where might he live? And so the writing might pause for a second while I quickly, you know, tried to find, you know, a book on Victorian manners or a book on, I found a wonderful book um, inside the Victorian home that just mm. really talked in detail about the furnishings they had and what the fireplace overmantle looked like. And I would frequently hit pause and just go quickly try to flesh something out until I could visualize it. And it felt like I was remembering something I'd seen once. Then I was ready to go back in. I think I find I am a regular and enthusiastic reader of historical mm-hmm. fiction because I enjoy visiting this world. And then whenever I think about writing it, I experience a feeling that you described earlier of just <laughs> freaking out. Mm-hmm. But there is, I think the research just sounds so fun. And really you mention in the acknowledgments that a thank you to the Victoria and Albert Museum. So I was curious mm-hmm. about your experience with that. Never got to go. Okay. Did, co- corresponded with them quite a bit, and they were very wonderful. Mm. Um, it's, it's an interesting dichotomy for me because the museum obviously is populated with antiquities from Abyssinia, and I was able to see some of their archives and really get a feel for what they have. And at the same time, I had to grapple with how those things came to be there. Right, exactly. You know, so on the one hand, extraordinarily helpful, very warm. On the other hand, this was colonial overreach and kind of the wholesale destruction of a culture um, that's now kind of on display for our amusement. And so it's, you know, I had some conflicted feelings, but at the same time, I needed to know what some of these Abyssinian antiquities looked like. And I got to see them visually and then I got to research about them in that journal kept by one of the British soldiers and you know there were times when they would overlap and I would see that I'm looking at and reading about the same things Um, and just you know to to kind of hear them in a period account and then see what that period account referred to visually was really really helpful for me but I geek out over that stuff (laughs) just just looking at details and and imagining myself using them a hundred years ago. But I, I have more of a panicked feeling, the, the kind that you're describing, thinking about writing a novel that's set right now. 
where people are, are going to text each other or, you know, same time each other, I'm like, how the hell would I make that interesting? It just does not in any way, shape or form spark my interest, you know, which is not to say I live in the past. I love the present. I'm addicted to my iPhone. I, I love everything about, you know, our sort of modern life. But the idea of writing meaning into it, I'm like, oh, dude, I'm the wrong person for that. I think, yeah, there is sort of a change of atmosphere that that does help story, I think. And maybe that's why historical mm-hmm. fiction is often so successful at transporting us both sort of through the imagination as well as, I mean, it's literally another time. Yeah. And, and there's something to me that is so poignant and you know it's that that emotion is usually the one that starts me writing um and there's something so poignant about the idea to kind of paraphrase julia margaret cameron of something that is no longer here to be able to try to reach back hold it still and shine a light on it to to be able to say this should not be forgotten there was something, you know, here's, you know, not to be trite, but, you know, here's a leaf from a tree that's 300 years old. There's something incredibly epic about this. And can we all please look at it and realize that to every single thing that has gone before us, there was a story. You know, I mean, we can look at museum images of people from, you know, 160 years ago, these old Victorian photographs. But, you know, that person in the middle of this ancient looking New York street trying to cross in front of a a trolley, that person was going somewhere because they were in love or a doctor just told them they were dying or, you know, they're, they see their child on the other side in danger and they're terrified, just like we would feel. There's, there's enormous epic stories inside each of us, even the ones of us who've, who've gone now. And the idea of trying to go back, excavate one of those stories and give it the appropriately lavish setup and explanation really just means so much to me. I keep, I mean, the, the new novel I'm working on now is the same, as my agent would say, the same damn thing. <laughs> I, I keep, this is what I, this is what I seem to really love doing. And it just, it jazzes me to find a, a forgotten little tidbit of a story and go, oh my God, that's, that's sweeping. I need to do something with that. That needs to be known. That's, that's amazing. I hope I'm the right person to do this. And now I'm freaking out, you know, that, you know, and, and to kind of go through that process. It's super fun. I know you must live in terror of going to photography exhibits. You know what? I'm not allowed in. <laughs> I'm walk like, like, I've got 30 books that need to be written. What the fuck? I know I'm having pop into my head. I mean, as a former student of photography, I mean, I guess you always are once you start, but having gone to mm-hmm. school for it, I'm thinking of, you know, Deanna Arbus images and, and, all right. kinds of people. I've got like mm-hmm. photo books on the other side of the room here, and I'm like, oh, ooh, fantastic. and I'm like, I'm already in the middle of the book. A giant I'm... book of all of Julie Margaret Cameron's photos that I have. They're amazing. Oh, oh they're so incredible. Great. She was such a visionary, and you know, at the time that she worked, everybody just attributed her 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 images to in, um, you know lack of familiarity with technique, and she didn't know how to light a photo. And I'm like, you know, here's a photo of a woman half suffused in darkness emerging into light you think that was accidental yeah that's like saying caravaggio was accidental exactly oh he stumbled into something that looks kind of cool 300 years later no you're an idiot this is this was this was artistic give them their due what is wrong with you i mean just she was so ridiculously ahead of her time 
and and you know I'm just really honored that I had the chance to encounter her and try to do some small thing with her. So as you find these stories and they come out, mm-hmm. it sounds like I got to get into this debate because everybody eventually wants to talk about this. Okay. You so you did one draft and then you did another mm-hmm. draft and then in the third mm-hmm. draft the characters started to find each other. And as you were talking yeah. about, okay, in the next scene they need to get in a, in a cab and what kind is it? How much do you know in advance about where the story is going to go? Mm-hmm. Are you outlining yeah. it or are you just kind of following them as they go? Um, both. I, I have. So so here's the thing. I'm a complete Luddite on the first draft. It is thoroughly handwritten. I, you know, the first draft of my novel in progress right now is a stack of yellow pads that's about eight inches thick. Wow. <laughs> I don't even want to know how many pages that is. And I have not begun to input even one sentence yet. I just I handwrite. And so before I start writing, I'm outlining. But the outline is really rough. And the outline is a lot of what if questions and a lot of supposition um, and a lot of meanderings into dark alleys that go nowhere. Um, and so in a weird way, that outline is almost like a first draft, just really rough, really 30,000 foot overview. Um, And then when I start writing, and I believe this so firmly, when I start writing that first draft, if I get to the end of the draft, and I've adhered to the outline, I'm screwed. (laughs) I'm just screwed. If if nobody in in that draft, in any way, shape or form ever popped up their head and said, I know where you thought I ought to be going by now. But you know, I think we both know me well enough to know that's not what I would do. That's when it's coming alive. And it is a little scary for a writer because now you're stepping into the unknown and the next page you write is not something you you thought of previously. You hadn't outlined it. You hadn't anticipated it. You're you're going blind and it can be a little terrifying, but that's when I know something might be working. Um, And that's what happened with, I think it was draft three of the night language where these characters began to demonstrate that there was something happening between them something that was unspoken between them, but unspoken to themselves because of who they were and their circumstances. But there was something besides just, and and that's where the line love is language from the night language, that's where that line came from was in the third draft, I realized, A, they were spending more time together than I had thought of, and they were going to actually follow each other off the ship once they got to London. But B, there was more happening between them than the simple expression of language in order to communicate what people need to know. There was something being communicated that they themselves did not know and did not even speak about to themselves. And I, that's, when I, that's when I realized I need to just simply write. I can't plan this anymore because they have plans that I'm not privy to. And I just need to see where this goes and where it went was really kind of the story version of something that Princess Louise says to one of the characters early in the book that, you know, only at night can you speak the language of who you are. During the day, you have to speak the language of who you're expected to be. The day represents their lives, who they've always had to be in order to survive their lives. The night is who they, you know, unconsciously really are and the language that they find for each other is the language to allow each other to be who they truly are 
with themselves and with each other. And none of that was outlined. <laughs> none of that was anticipated. I did not anticipate that this was a love story. Um, certainly not a love story between these two characters. And uh, I guess the best way to put it is there was never a point during the, the writing of this book or even when this book went on submission that somebody did not believe in this book. There mm. was always a time when the only one who believed in this book was me and, and I think the characters in the book. There was just one of those one of those novels, you know, it needed to find its place and it, it fought for its place. And I'm really thrilled that it found its place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's something a writer and teacher of mine said, you know, no one is going to spend as much time with your book as you are. Yeah. Um, and in some ways, the characters spend even more time with it than you do, because you're just trying to listen to them and figure out where they've been and where they're going. Right. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm the kind of reading weirdo who you know, when the book begins and the book ends, I think of them as outside of the confines of the book and, oh, I don't Absolutely. get to hear about it anymore, but I don't feel like they're gone. I so completely agree with that. The books that mean the most to me are the ones where I just, I find myself thinking of the character and I find myself, you know, asking the question, I wonder how they're doing. Right. Yeah, that's, that to me, that, that book found a home in deep inside me as opposed to, I closed the, the cover and went, yeah, that's fine. Okay. Yeah, the ones where you finish it and then you end up feeling a little bit lonely, like, oh, I don't right? get to I don't get to hear where they are or what they're doing mm -hmm. anymore. Yeah, there was a, an amazing book. It's one of my favorites by um, the author Shang Rai Lee called A, a Gesture Life. Mm. And I find myself thinking of the character in that book a lot, you know, as he embarks away from this life that he tried to create for himself out back into the world that he never really wanted to enter again. And I just find myself wondering, I wonder how he did. I wonder, you know, did he really come round to find home again in the end, like I hope he did. And that's, and then I kind of go, oh, it's a fictional character, and, and maybe you're like a little adult. But then I'm like, no, that, that <laughs> book completely did what, uh, what all of us dream of doing, you know. If somebody ever walked up to me and said, you know, the characters of Philip and Alamayu, I miss them. I wonder about them sometimes. I'd be like, you know. I'm going to start weeping right now. Yeah, because I think that's the power of fiction in many ways is that, you know, it doesn't matter if if they're real or not, because in yeah. order to read a book, you have to make them real. Yeah, yeah. And, and in order to write it, it's it's even more so because you kind of have to channel it and yeah. and go through. So. So you had two whole drafts. I think this is important for people to hear also, because there's a whole process where, okay, you've looked at this photograph, you've seen this, this story come alive, you've done a ton of research, you're corresponding with the museum, you're really mm -hmm. dedicated, you're worried about cultural, all mm -hmm. kinds of responsibility, historical accuracy, and you've written two drafts before you really got to what the story was about. So right. about what is the timeline on that? Because I, I want people who maybe have an idea for a story, they've kind of started in the first draft, they're feeling a little bit like, is this even worth it? Like, mm -hmm. sometimes you have to stick with it for quite some time before you really yes. find the throes of it. So can you give us a little bit of a timeline for how sure. all of this unfolded? So the initial, the initial research was in and of itself a little over a year, just to try to comprehend you know, it, it, the, the, the amount of material just on Queen Victoria is daunting. <laughs> yeah. So I had to carve back what I wanted to know about her that would fit within the story. I mean, if you read the night language, one thing you might notice is 
you know, there's really only two of her children that are depicted because there are so many children and there's so many separate storylines that could emerge. <clears throat> I picked, frankly, the two children who thematically reminded me of the story because they were both in their own way outsiders. And that's really what the story is about, is being othered and that experience of being othered and, and then finding that maybe there's a someplace for you that's home after all. And so Leopold and Louise were in their own ways, the, the more othered of her children. So they're the ones who found their way very firmly into the story. Um, but the research part itself, probably a year and change. Then going through those two drafts to come to that place where I realized that the story was very seismically changing out from under me, we're getting close to the two-year mark at that point, probably a year and nine months, roughly. Um, and then once the story kind of presented itself, the drafting and the revision moved much faster. Mm. But I still probably did 10 drafts. But, you know, I mean, that's why it was about a three-year process. Yeah. So if, if folks are working on outlines or working on drafts and it's just not working and you're just kind of wondering when is the time to hang it up, you know, the, this is going to sound terrible, but maybe the time to hang it up in a permanent way is when you're dead. But until then... Don't give up on the story. I mean, if <clears throat> I, so, there's this saying that my grandmother came up with, although I'm very, very positive that it's not hers, but she said it to me once about nothing to do with writing. And I realized that um, it had direct application to writing. And she told me once if somebody calls you a jackass, they're very rude. But if two people call you a jackass, you're probably a jackass. <laughs> and at the time, I thought, well, that's my grandma. She's pretty funny. But then I realized, oh, my God, that's writing feedback. That's if, if more than one person starts, even if they're coming at it from different directions, but if more than one person is telling you something's not working or something's communicating in a way you didn't intend, regardless of whether you agree or not, at least now you know there's a decision to be made. There's something you've written that is communicating in an aberrant way compared to what you hoped. So as long as you're getting feedback on what you're doing, if the story is not working, you got to ask yourself, why isn't it working? If it's not working because people are giving you critical feedback and it's not lavished with praise, then all that means is you've got revision to do. If it's not working because it's no longer speaking to you, it no longer matters to you, there's not any even grain of it that is still alive in you when you're looking away from the page, you're looking out the window, you're out on a date with your significant other, and yet there's still something that is calling you back. If that's no longer happening, if every last thread between you and that material is just gone, and now it's just labor, start something else. If for no other reason, then starting something else may either lead to a wonderful separate story, or there might something might happen during that drafting that turns you back to that work that you originally put down. But you're never you're never done with anything you write. You know, there's always some piece of it that could at any moment call you back. So you may as well just keep hacking at it unless there's something about it that just no longer matters. If it's making you love it, if it's making you hate it, if it's making you afraid of it, if it's making you angry at it, it's still working. It still has its hooks in you in some way. But if it's just, I don't care, I don't think about it, I don't give it even a moment's consideration during the day, turn to something else. You may turn back to it or you may not. Either way, it's served its purpose. It brought you here. 
So it, there's no there's no such thing as writing that doesn't matter. Writing always transports you somewhere, either to the end of that story or to a different, better story. But you may never be fully done with it. Just don't give up on it. Nobody can write the story that you're working on right now except you. It doesn't matter how many times they're published. It doesn't matter how many accolades they've gotten, how many prizes they've won, how many New York Times reviews they've gotten. And if anybody from New York Times is listening, please review my book. Um, <laughs> none, of that, none of that stuff matters. None of us who have been published and are very fortunate that way can write the story you're writing right now. Only you can do it in the way that you are doing it. You could tell me what you're writing and I could write my own version of it and it will suck compared to yours because it doesn't, it's not alive in me. It's alive in you. So don't give up on it. Just, you know, take a break from it, come at it from a different angle, start over again, but don't give up on it. There, there's a reason why it came to you because it was supposed to come to you. It's supposed to be alive in you. So don't take that for granted or, or shoo that away unnecessarily. You're going to, you're going to finish something. And it's going to be worth it, even if it just serves as a stepping stone to the next better thing. It's there for you. It was meant to be there for you. See it through. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. I know. I'm like, oh, man, I got to work on my book today. I'm listening to that. <laughs> um, right, so we got to go now. You, you go right. Thanks so much. I know. Exactly. <laughs> um, no, I think it's true. I mean, and as as someone who studied photography, I feel like I might have said this on the show before, but bear with me if, you, if you've heard this before. I'm like, oh, my God, Caroline. But... Um, that there was a an evidence of from photography of two photographers standing next to each other. I think one of them was Ansel Adams and taking the same photograph at the same exposure, and it still looked different. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. It's it's remarkable. Again, going back to that that idea about the room, which is actually a writing exercise. None of us see things the same way. You know, all of us have our own perspectives because our perspectives. And this is true just in observing our lives as well as in writing the life that we're choosing to write about. It's informed by everything that's happened to us up to that point. You know, that's why it may not be necessary to write about what happened to the character five minutes before the scene starts, but it is absolutely necessary to think about it. Mm. What was happening? You chose to begin your story. You chose to begin your photograph at a particular moment in a particular direction. Why not one degree to the south? Why not five minutes ago or five minutes from now? It may not be something that makes its way onto the page or into the frame, but it's it's informing it. There's no question that it's informing it. It may be because you just really like the angle of the sun at that moment. Well, why? Is it because you saw it someplace else? Is it because the sun is what makes you happy and the shade makes you apprehensive? Why? These all these questions become fodder for what it is that's informing the art that you're making and the expression that you're trying to create. The, the, the writing of your characters and setting as one of them is a friendship. And, you know, you and I have just met and started talking. So what I would say about you now, if, you know, Julia called me on the other line um, and, you know, in Julia's words would say, so how the fuck did it go? What I would say about you, it'd be different if we had been speaking to each other for a year right? because the, the depth of intimacy would be different. And so my shorthand knowledge of you would be completely different. And my, my ability to answer questions about what would Carolyn do if given this situation is different than it would be right now. That, that sort of, and when I say friendship, I don't mean you have to like your characters. You can absolutely despise them, just hate them beyond all measure, but know them. 
and that that knowledge is what hopefully starts out your writing. It's just getting to know them so that you could anticipate what they would do in a situation, even though your friends always surprise you. I knew Alamayu pretty well by the third draft, and he still shocked the hell out of me. It's just that once he was presented with a circumstance I didn't anticipate, I could understand how someone like him might respond to it or deal with it. Didn't mean I expected it any more than he did, but I could at least try to figure out what he would do based upon the human being he is. I mean, I think the thing you alluded to this earlier, and I love this concept, that pretty much all stories are an answer to a what-if question. Yeah. And I think that, you know, sometimes you don't even know what the what-if question is that you're asking until it just pops up. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There, there's a game, uh, like a sort of a writing game I like to play that kind of starts the what-if ball rolling, which is the yellow light test, mm. which is your, your character is in the car. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying they're driving. I'm not saying they're passenger. They're in a car, and the car is heading towards an intersection, and the light changes yellow. What do they do? Mm. And the question then becomes, why? Why do they do that? If they fly through the intersection, why? Well, what if someone's dying in the back seat? What if they're the passenger and they've been kidnapped? What if they're not alive? What if they're a ghost in the car and they keep revisiting the same intersection where they were killed 10 years earlier? What if, what if, what if? The, you, you have no idea about your story just from, oh, I was walking around the other day and I saw a pair of scissors lying on the sidewalk and it made me think, I'm going to do a story about, you know, a homeless person who lost scissors once and, you know, on and on and on. You then you have that's no story. That's that's a through line. The what if? Well, what if those scissors came from here? What if somebody else picked them up? What if what if that's where the story the, the story to me is not like the drop of wine on a napkin. It's all the little threads as it absorbs and spreads out in all directions. That's the story. Mm. And some of them may be dead ends, but who cares? Follow every single one of them. That the what if is where the story lives. It's not some game that you play with yourself to make the story more interesting. It is the story. There is no story without playing what if. And I think that's the fun part is that, you know, you not only get to ask what if, but you get to see what happens. I mean, so mm -hmm. often in our, I think maybe that's what's so satisfying about writing and what's so satisfying about reading too, is you get to go to a bookstore or a library and say, Ooh, which what if do I want to follow? Because, you know, every yeah. day we get up and we, we've, we have some what if moments in life and we get to mm -hmm. follow them, but not always. Mm -hmm. But yeah, And probably not nearly enough, especially if you've got like a family and right. job and responsibilities, you know, your, your what ifs are, should I, should I get extra foam? <laughs> <laughs> yeah do i want the pumpkin spice latte right. or what if i yeah exactly it's not like yeah. what if i just flew to tahiti today and saw what was going right. on there it's mm -hmm. that's a little so harder can, to orchestrate yeah so you can play more emotional what ifs that's that's your writing your writing is your absolute escape i mean god i hope it is if it's not at least that um i, I it could be a massive chore for you and i hope it's not too terrible but you know at the very least i hope it is an amazing emotional escape yeah i do too well thank you so much for coming on and oh, talking thank you about for this having me i hope i didn't ramble uncontrollably no honestly i have to say lots of people say they're rambling and honestly i think everyone listening will agree the rambling is the best part so thank <laughs> you for being willing I'm to just never sure about the listener but i, I hope everybody enjoyed it Thank you for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. 
The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.